0: I'm Esther Armar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective, I'm live in City FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are syndicated and on air across the United States and internationally in Ghana and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, we have two main event conversations. A black Princeton professor, stopped, arrested, body searched, cuffed to a table, shares her story. And main event conversation two: Beyoncé's formation under scrutiny. All of that, coming up. Our contributors this week for Main Event Discussion 1 are Professor Imani Perry and Manifa Bandele. Professor Imani Perry teaches African-American studies at Princeton University. Manifa Bandele is a Senior Campaign Director of MomsRising.org, a member of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, and is on the Steering Committee of Communities United for Police Reform. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Our first main event conversation is part of the SPINS Multimedia Project with the Ford Foundation, State of Our Union, the health and wealth of black girls and women in the United States. In this month long series, we connect individual narrative and experience to institutional policy, politics and statistics to paint whole pictures of the complex realities for black women and girls in the United States. Saturday morning, Princeton professor Imani Perry is driving her car. Getting ready for the weekend. She is stopped by local police, body searched, arrested, an encounter that ends up with her being cuffed to a table in the local Princeton precinct. Professor Perry's ordeal occurred on the weekend that activist Sandra Bland would have turned 29. Sandra Bland, known as Sandy to her family and friends, was also stopped by an officer on July 13, 2015. That encounter ended up with Sandra found hanged in a cell in Waller County, Texas. Her death was classified as a suicide by the county coroner. Protests followed. Disputes about how Sandra died continue. It was also the weekend Trayvon Martin would have turned 21. Trayvon was a 17-year-old African-American teenage boy shot and killed in a Sanford, Florida gated community on February 26, 2012 by neighborhood watchman George Zimmerman, who was acquitted on manslaughter charges after a trial that made national and global headlines and a verdict that sparked a global Black Lives Matter movement. And it was also the weekend that hackers breached the website of the country's biggest law enforcement union, the Fraternal Order of Police, and leaked dozens of contracts between police and city authorities guaranteeing that disciplinary records and complaints made against officers by citizens are kept secret or even destroyed. Let's connect dots and talk individual police encounters and institutional police protections from sanction and transformation. Professor Imani Perry, let me start with you. Imani, talk us through what actually happened.
1: It was actually Saturday morning. I was driving to work, importantly enough, to go to a student-organized conference, an undergraduate-organized conference on womanism. Um, and I was trying to make it in time for the first panel and also for the keynote address by Dorothy Roberts, which is going to talk about Black women's encounters with law enforcement and a medical um, industrial complex. Um, At 9 a.m., I am driving um, just a few miles from work. I'm pulled over. police officer asks for, for my light. Well, initially, he says, do you know how fast you were driving? And I said, well, no, but you know, it's a stretch of road that, that has uh, a great deal of bumps, so you can't drive too fast. Told me I was driving over 60. I didn't believe it, but I, as we have learned to be, was trying to be as compliant as possible. And I said, "Well, tell me what I need to do." Anyway, there, you know, there are a number of of, of steps to the process. He tells me ultimately that he has to arrest me for a parking ticket in Princeton in 2013. Again, this is a ticket that um, I believe I paid. I recall getting the notice. Um, Paid in the online system, but I wasn't going to argue with him. And I said, "Can I call someone before you arrest me from the university, so that someone knows where I am?" He declined that request. I said, "Can you take me to an ATM because I don't have cash to pay the ticket?" He declined that request. Um, and then, you know, uh, does a body search, asks me if I have any weapons. There's a female officer as well by that time, but he's the one who does the search. Um, and they put me in the back of the squad car and. There are a number of details that I haven't yet talked about, but there was problems when I actually got to the station as well that had to do with the fact that they had no system for for me to pay. And so I wouldn't be able to pay with any of my cards uh, until Monday. And so I asked again, can you take me to the ATM? And they said no. And so then I had to ultimately call a colleague. But I said, you know, it's really, I said, I don't live in this state. It's really um, they're quite embarrassing to have to call a professional colleague for assistance. Is there any way that you can facilitate me actually getting my own money to be able to pay you? The answer was no again. And they were changed I was I was handcuffed to a table at this point. Um, and so ultimately I was able to have someone assist me post posting bail, but um, the in particular the mail body search handcuffing me to a table and the refusal to allow me to figure out, you know, how to pay on my own, particularly given that they were suggesting that if I couldn't, I'd have to stay there till Monday, um, struck me as, as disproportionate without question.
0: So the, the the male body search, you said that there was a female officer who, who had arrived by that time. So then now there's two officers yeah. in, in, in front of you. Has he told you at that point that you're under arrest?
1: Uh, he said, we're going to have to arrest you. Right. So there was no point where he says explicitly you're under arrest, but he's I assume at that point, once he starts searching my body and going into my pocket, um, that that was the precursor. You know, it was right before he um, handcuffed me.
0: And do you ask if the female officer can search you? Is there any kind of conversation about the body search or does he just go ahead and start to pat you down?
1: I was trying to be as compliant as possible. I was terrified, honestly. Um, uh, And, you know, in the context that you gave is precisely why. Um, because um, you know my efforts to say, well, can I? You know, I said, you know, whatever I need to do, officer. You know, if, if I need to leave my car, that's fine. So I didn't ask for, for the woman to do the search.
0: Talk to me about just the the feeling of when the the police car starts to you know rev their um, their lights to let you know to stop, because in a moment right now where. The work that we do makes us not just aware but involved in the ways in which um, our bodies are policed. So that it's it's this activism in a in a national black body sense, but then it becomes this really intimate, terrifying you know terrifying moment. And I don't know that we really understand how terrifying it must have been. Like when I read the post. I was in tears. I was so, I was so scared for you. And I want, I'm thinking about all the people that are listening to the show across, all, all across America who have no idea and do not understand when black folks say, of course, it's terrifying. And they have this notion of, well, if you've done nothing wrong, why would you be scared? And I want them to understand, to understand that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely terrifying. I, last year I was pulled over, um, and I, I was literally shaking so intensely that the officer became nervous for me. Um, and, you know, was saying, are you okay? Do I need to get you some water? I mean, that was her response. Um, this instance, I don't think it was quite as um, visibly apparent, but I, you know, I obviously I pulled over immediately. I was afraid to move um, as he took my license and registration. You know, I was, I was perfectly still. Um, I, this feeling that, you know, this terror. And I was afraid even to call someone, although in retrospect, I wish I I had at that moment, at least, you know, just with my fingers on the, on the keys. Um, but just this feeling, you know, after you witness the footage again and again of, um, uh, these police murders that happen with complete impunity, there is no consequence repeatedly. And so, you know, at that moment you are, you're, you're totally vulnerable because there's no evidence that anything will happen, even if they act, um, with the most egregious forms of violence. Um, and so, you know, so it's, it's, it's a terror that comes from actually how our legal system responds to these moments. There's no consequence. And, and so they have, you know, they can do it. Police officers can essentially do whatever they want in a society.
0: So they walk you into the into the police station, this cuffing you to a table, cuffing you to a table. It's a single parking ticket. And you are cuffed to yes. a table. How does that even, how, how does that happen? Do they walk you in and they cuff you? Like, how does that happen? And how long were you cuffed for?
1: I was cuffed for um, a bit over an hour, I think. I mean, I, and I don't know. They took me into the station in handcuffs and then they cuffed me to the table and they only um, released the cuff when they wanted to take my mug shot. They're claiming it's the standard procedure now, but they're also claiming um, that the arrest was for multiple tickets, which is not um, what was said. And it's also not on what they wrote to me. Um, so they you know, so a lot of things are being fictionalized now, but um, so it, it, it struck me as bizarre, but again, I didn't say anything at that moment um, really for, as a result of my fear, yeah. I didn't ask why I was being cuffed. Um, they asked me if I was okay. Several times I said, no, I'm not okay. Um, I'm handcuffed to a table.
0: It makes you speechless because you want to say, you know, people say, are you OK? You're handcuffed to a table on the basis of a parking ticket. Yeah. Like in what human environment is that treatment of a human being OK?
1: I was going to say, I mean, this is actually part of the reason that I spoke up because it would be, have been very easy. You know, I had the money to pay the ticket. I did without question. You know, it, it, it would all have been very easy to to have, um, you know, go go the incident go by with with without any public attention to it. Um, and, and for me, that question, I mean, it's a, it's a sign of the expansion of policing in our society, that this is actually, I mean, we saw this in the Justice Department report about Ferguson, all these tickets that lead to arrests, that lead to co- court fees. We saw it in the case of Eric Garner, the, uh, um, you know, selling Lucy's that is supposed to lead to a fine leads to his death, right? So this idea that police officers can perform a tax function, because that's what, really what it is, um, you know, you want to, the municipalities want to tax individuals, um, but then they, but to give that authority to police officers to execute who are carrying weapons and who act with total impunity um, is, you know, and uh, is a sign of the way in which we really, this is a carceral state, it's a police state, um, and the United States likes to pretend that that's not the case, um, but it absolutely is the case, and, so the, and the tentacles are ever-expanding.
0: They really are. And it's really important to note that, you know, it's a parking ticket. Right. Eric Garner was Lucy's. Freddie Gray was eye contact. Right. Walter Scott was a traffic stop. Really minor things. And black people are ending up dead. dead. And that is being replayed in all kinds of ways. And so it's really it really um, it's so frustrating when you hear people just dismiss just the levels of terror and fear that any one of us would feel being stopped and then knowing this history the way you know it. Manifa Bandele, let me um, bring you in, and let's connect these dots of this individual encounter, and let's put it in an institutional um, um, context. Your thoughts.
2: Three things. One, a parking ticket is a violation. It's not even a crime. So they really are performing acts as bill collectors. I mean, as you hear Imani explain this, it sounds like a kidnapping for ransom. How can I, can I go to ATM that uh, your friend has to bring you money? You're handcuffed to the table. I mean, it sounds like something out of a horror movie. And we talked about it being on the birthday of Sandra Bland, but another large case also just happened involving black women in traffic stops, and that was the police officer, Daniel Hortzclaw, who sexually assaulted mm. dozens of women only to be convicted of one dozen women and still gain more protection in in, in in his conviction, in being convicted and, and sentenced, he's gotten more co- protection from the state than black women. His entire profile has disappeared from the Department of Corrections' website. He can't be located. They won't say what prison he's in. People don't even know if he's still in jail. So when you talk about, one, the protection to, to uh, keep... Disciplinary issues private uh, that the Fraternal Order of Police has worked out with local police departments It goes all the way through even once you're no longer a police officer and incarcerated That's an extreme amount of power that the police associations are now wielding on a on a local state and national level And in New York, we have a very similar situation. We're calling it. We call it custodial arrest so police officers have the discretion on whether or not to arrest people for violations, whether or not to say, here's a summons, you need to appear in court, or I'm going to arrest you, I'm going to take you to the precinct. And how that discretion plays out on the ground is that black and brown bodies are being arrested for violations, like riding their bikes on the sidewalk, having an open container of alcohol, where in other parts of the city people are getting tickets and getting summons. And so this discretion is power. You know, there's power, and then there's the impunity, to be disciplined, and then when you're forced to be disciplined, when you have literally raped dozens of black women, then there's the added layer of protection of, like, you just disappear in the system. So Imani's fear is real. It's terrifying. Just listening to it is terrifying. I was also stopped by the police on the end of my own block and harassed with my phone number and then given a bogus ticket, you know, when I wasn't nice and friendly and, and smiling back. I had to go to court and fight that ticket, and it was humiliating. And these are the types of experiences that black women are experiencing every single day. And the impunity is the thing that freezes us. It freezes us with the fear. You know, we heard uh, Melissa Harris-Perry talk about being approached by someone when she was covering the election, and she, she, re- she remembered trauma from her youth and froze when this man approached her. You know, this is so ongoing, that Imani's reaction is just like, and it was just like, she couldn't even say, I want, I'd want i rather have this woman search me because Sandra okay. Bland, because all those women raped by this officer, Holtzclaw, was on her mind, you know, and in her remembrance of being fought before. So we are like traumatized, re-traumatized to a level where it's no wonder the health implications, the emotional health implications that are rampant throughout our community are all connected to this. This policing, this broken windows policing, this hyper-enforcement of low-level violations is a public health crisis as well as a mass, in- mass incarceration crisis.
0: It really is. And um, Imani, I want you to speak to that a little bit, the notion that this threatens our health. Because yeah. I really uh, resist this um, these descriptions that people have that these are microaggressions. Yeah. There's nothing mm-hmm. micro about the reality that the history of encounters by black women and men with the police end up with people being violently killed. So there's nothing micro about that. And it's not the appearance of something. It is the reality borne out with multiple pieces of evidence. And yet the health piece, the impact on our emotional health, on our wellness, on the ability to then go back, because it's the idea, okay, okay, we just released you, go back to work, no big deal, tickets paid, just keep it moving. As as if our terror and being traumatized is, is nothing.
1: I actually went to work because I wanted to support my student destiny's conference which look and, and, and so when I when I got in I got there late and Dorothy Roberts was talking about this a story of a black woman as part of her lectures, talking about a story of a black woman in a hospital who um, is, winds up being um, uh, uh, abused by police officers in the context of being in a hospital. And I actually just, I had spent the day before in the hospital um, dealing with some, some health issues, and I began to wet, weep um, immediately in response because of that, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of, there's both, there's the, there's the consequence of the trauma, the terror, right, which, which absolutely, all, you know, we know that stress impacts health. But then there's also the fact that we, that we suffer from, from, from um, all kinds of greater health risks um, uh, as a result of, of, all, of, of racism, of poverty, of environmental hazards, all these sorts of things, and that even in the context in which we're physically most vulnerable, we also are, are vulnerable to state violence, right? And so all these things are, are, are compounded. And that I do think that's part of the thing, you know, people, um, I mean, on the one hand, I take the position that I don't think in any instance, whether regardless of race or gender, a person should be arrested for a parking ticket. But the feeling of that encounter, of course, varies quite dramatically depending upon what you know, your personal history in in relationship to police officers and what you know the the consequences of, of, of racism and particularly racism directed towards black women often are. Um, And so, you know, I was, I I spent much of the weekend in tears. Um, I've been sleepless. Um, I, you know, my, it has certainly exacerbated pre-existing health problems. And I don't, as I, I said in a statement, I don't want to catastrophize my situation. Many worse things happen every day to thousands upon thousands of black women, I think. But the point is that even this encounter has these kinds of physical effects, right? So we think about, all the arrests that happen, we think about the people who wind up in holding cells for days and weeks. the People who wind up, who are forced into plea deals because they are afraid of what being taken away from the children. I mean, all these sorts of compounding factors. Um, uh, it's a it's it's a massive. I think it's that that description of it as a public health um, problem is, is absolutely right because you know because uh, the repercussions extend so far into our community. Yes.
2: I like that you push back on the term microaggressions because I call it it's really death by a thousand cuts. You know, this yeah. notion that these are just little things, these are little nicks, but a thousand will kill you. And mm. I remember the feeling I had when the, just the, the lights and realizing that I was being pulled over by the police, I felt like I almost had a stroke. My heart was racing. My body ran cold. Instantly, instantly. And there are people in this country that have no idea what that feels like. You know, and so these ongoing, these death by a thousand cuts, these constant, uh, suspicion, attacks, sexual assault, it weighs down on you and you die. And it's not in the one instance, but it's the combination of them. And so it, it is public health and it's criminal and it's, and it's an attack on the community in a way that's so insidious because it is talked about as if we should shrug it off, as if we should just comply. As if we should get over it. How many times do we see that on social media? You know, and that's the real insidious nature of it. That's the gaslighting that's going on when it comes to this very, very uh, nefarious and diseased uh, system that we're living in.
0: So closing, um, I am just so happy that I even have you on the phone, Imani Perry, from my heart. I am so sorry that this happened to you. Yes. And I am so sorry that you walked through this, um, encounter. I absolutely honor and, uh, hear your fear and your pain and your terror. And I'm so glad that we are on the phone speaking right now, but I'm so sorry that this happened to you. I really am. So you take the, you have the closing word.
1: Thank you. Yes. Likewise. Thank you so much. I just want to say quickly, there, there have been lots of people in the press contact me and want to speak to me. And, um, you know, I haven't spoken to folks, and there was no question when you reached out to me that I would be because the the kind of space that you create for us as Black women um, is 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 unlike anything um, else. It's a, it's a, it's a safe space. It's a, it's an intellectual space. It's a beautiful space. So thank you for that,
0: Professor Imani Perry Manifa Bendele. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank you. That's the sound of the police. Woop woop. That's the sound of the bees. Woop woop. That's the sound of the police. Woop woop. That's the sound of the bees. Woop woop. That's the sound of the police. Woop woop. That's the sound of the
0: First of our two main event conversations. You're listening to The Spin, a one hour weekly All Women of Color media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors from our first main event conversation were Professor Imani Perry and Manifa Bandele. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in City FM's Accra studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on City FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7, Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for our second main event discussion. Okay, ladies, now get information. Yes, we are exploring multi-million dollar megastar and mogul award-winning Beyoncé's new video formation and her Super Bowl performance. For this second main event conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Yabba Blay and Lene Denise. Dr. Yabba Blay is a professor, producer and publisher. Dr. Blay is the Dan Blue Endowed Chair in Political Science at North Carolina Central University the creator of the multimedia global project Pretty Period and publisher and editor-in-chief of Black Print Press. Dr. Blay is a global expert who writes on issues of colorism and identity. Lene Denise is a global DJ scholar, a cultural producer and a musical essayist whose work, what she calls Entertainment with a Thesis, has taken her across the US to London, Holland and South Africa as she researches black social and political movements to present the dynamic range of music of the diaspora. Lene Denise is founder of the Wild Seed Cultural Group. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Hello. Beyonce's formation video. It dropped on Saturday, February the 9th, the 21st birthday of Trayvon Martin. One day before what would have been activist Sandra Bland's 29th birthday and one day before the US's Super Bowl 50. The video is set in a post-Hurricane Katrina, New Orleans, and throws back to what seems like a plantation black historical past. Through lyrics like this... Beyonce speaks to internalized black self-hatred <laughs> through lyrics like this, Beyonce sat deep in a space of black affirmation
3: I that
0: and through lyrics like these, Beyoncé offers revenge for haters, hateration, even racism.
3: You know you that
2: bitch when you cause all this conversation. Always stay gracious, best revenge
3: is your paper.
0: The musical, visual, political, and sonic landscapes Beyoncé conjured and created provoked a storm across social media. There were those who absolutely loved it and said so in effusive, expansive language. There were vigorous critiques of specific elements of it. For example, the use of New Orleans and Creole references. And then there were extremes. Ride for it, ride for her. Hate it, hate her. And then there was the vitriol in some of the language describing the singer and the video. Let's talk Beyonce's formation, what we loved and why, what was problematic and why, and why one woman provokes such vitriol and seems to be so triggering, especially for black women. Dr. Yaba let me start with you. What did you love and why?
4: You know, when I first saw the video, I loved that I felt like we were getting bombarded, literally, with these images that could be read as affirming our blackness in a very unapologetic way. And given that it's Beyonce, given that so many people love Beyonce and listen to Beyonce across the world and across the board, it just felt like a powerful moment. Um, And I think because of the moment that we're in as, you know, black people in this racialized and highly racist society, particularly in this moment, I think we yearn for that affirmation and we're willing to take it from wherever it's going to come. And that it came from Beyonce just made it even better. So visually, I thought the, you know, from a cinematography um, perspective, I thought it was visually stunning, beautiful imagery. Um, And, of course, there's dancing, so I'm always here for that. And just in terms of the repetition, seemed like it was charging up an anthem. So, I mean, I liked it aesthetically, especially.
0: Lynette Denise, what did you love and why?
4: I mean, just so it's clear where I stand, I mean, I think
5: that Beyonce is a beast. Um, I would argue that she's earned sort of like an honorary membership into the Royal Jackson family in terms of scale of her reach and the magnitude of her performances. So y'all heard it here, Beyonce Jackson. <laughs> for um, and, you know, I mean, a part of her work is that she is very clear about her um, life as a student of Michael, both Michael and, and, and Janet. And so I can see that in her work. And as it relates to the video formation, I mean, I really, really appreciate the references to migration patterns. And the relationship that exists between louisiana alabama and texas because of those patterns right so the video had me thinking about a quote um, i heard from mary baraka which was that black america is a country and then i thought about like mark anthony neil's assertion that a black american diaspora you know was born out of the great migration which positions the black south as a sort of motherland you know which is why we hear the phrase back home right so in the formation video beyonce reps the black south like a Black American motherland um, or a homeland. And we understand that this homeland is tied to centuries of pain and bloodshed and violence. But I think what comes through formation is that it is also a motherland that's tied to pleasure and what I like to call um, like radical joy or misery resistance. And um, I think one of the dopest pieces for me that was written, I want to point to the work of Dr. Zandria Robinson, who wrote one of the most incredible pieces, I think, about the video titled We Slay suggesting that the Visuals for Formation offers up New Orleans as a convergence place for Blackness to slays through dreams, work, ownership, legacy, and the audacity of bodies that dare move and live in the face of death. So I appreciate that Bay has, you know, she's presented us with work that reflects the time and that she's evolving as a thinker and an artist and that she's surrounded and shaped by many masterful artists.
0: I loved it for... Um... I mean, there's so many reasons. How do you even begin to uh, identify them? I I really loved seeing that small little black boy um, dancing in front of a line, the officers raising their hands and cut to stop shooting us. And I think for Beyonce, who is arguably um, one of the biggest stars in the world, globally recognized, That series of images, sequentially, the little boy dancing, the officers in riot gear raising their hands, and that phrase, stop stop shooting us, centralizes a global Black Lives Matter movement um, to millions of people for whom that might be completely alien. And they may have just got their first introduction to even the idea of this kind of police um, violence. For for those of us who are connected to it and dealing with it on a, on an everyday reality, that may seem absurd. Um, but I think of folk who are who, for who for whom this is a whole nother conversation. And that through uh, a megastar, they have this introduction, and that's amazingly powerful um, for me. I loved the um, lyricism um, of it. I loved the visual um um, imagery and the vastness of it um i'm still thinking through and thinking about beyonce's body drowning on top of the police car in a hurricane katrina new orleans and the uh symbolism um, of that um but i think it's extraordinary and and powerful i wanted to ask you you um denise about the kind of sonic and political musical landscapes um as a dj scholar Uh, You're somebody for whom kind of finding the language in music and movement and politics is a particular work. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that.
5: It moved me um, because of where, you know, the producers decided to drop the bass. It moved me because of her body's understanding of where that bass is. Um, Some of the lyrics moved me because of the visuals and this kind of like unapologetic Blackness, but also this interesting time travel that's happening. And so we have a soundtrack to a certain kind of, yeah, almost like a slave, a futuristic slave narrative, um, that is, yeah, punctuated by this, this, um, this sort of body memory thing that's happening with Beyonce that she really moves me around. Um, I would say just on a global level and for multiple reasons, I feel like she embodies diaspora. Um, as a dancer, she speaks multiple black body languages. Um, I was thinking about, you know, baby boy with Sean Paul and um, you know, her giving you elements of, of a like a dance hall queen and and maybe that can be read as another form of appropriation, but I do trust her movement and her like reaching for the diaspora. Um, and then when I learned about her, like, five-month search for dancers from Mozambique that she came across on YouTube, I was, again, impressed and excited um, that she was on a hunt for dancers in Southern Africa who came out of a Pansulu and Township experience and thought that that was super dope. Um, she found these Tofu Tofu dancers, flew them to L.A., hired them as choreographers for part of the Who Run the World video. You know, they were compensated, acknowledged, and given exposure, which changed the course of their lives, according to them. And so... Um, you know, it was just an interesting thing to see her drop into different um, spaces, to different black spaces, and I feel like respectfully um, sort of take part in a conversation around dance and music that defines that, that particular black space. And so I think that she did this with with formation and sort of dropping in um, on this on this sort of sissy bounce and bounce um, culture and, and actually having the bodies that are in those spaces perform the dance, in this case, while she, still working with her, like, you know, some of her queer choreographers still sort of um, gives you the Beyonce brand through extreme sort of, like, thigh mastery movement.
0: (laughs) Extreme thigh mastery movement. I love that. That should be a thing and a phrase. What I'm also incredibly moved by is the strength of reaction Beyonce gets when she drops anything but this video formation in particular and the Super Bowl performance which has sparked, I mean phenomenal um, reaction and so let's go through some of the issues folk had with the video. One issue was this line. One of the first issues that I certainly saw in reading different posts and comments and pieces across social media was the reference to um, Creole. Dr. Yabba Blair, you wrote a piece for Color Lines on um, this issue. And you wrote, I-, I wanted to just quote you, you wrote this quote, Having grown up black-black, read dark-skinned, in-color-struck New Orleans, hearing someone, particularly a woman, make a distinction between Creole and Negro is deeply trigger- triggering. This isn't just for me, but for many New Orleanians. For generations, Creoles, people descended from a cultural racial mixture of African, French, Spanish and or Native American people have distinguished themselves racially from, quote, regular Negroes, unquote. In New Orleans, phenotype, namely, quote, pretty color and good hair, unquote, translates to relative power. In this context, people who are light-skinned with non-kinky hair and the ability to claim a Creole heritage have had access to educational, occupational, social and political opportunities that darker-skinned, kinkier-haired, non-Creole folks have been denied. In many ways, among those of us who are not Creole and whose skin is dark brown, the claiming of a Creole identity is read as rejection. And I'm not just talking about history books or critical race theory. I'm talking about on-the-ground, real-life Experiences, unquote. That was from your piece in um, Color Lines. Just break that down for me.
4: So, the Creole, um, I mean, I think the, the identity piece is at the forefront of many of our experiences um, in New Orleans. And so, for me, on the one hand, while I am a huge Beyonce fan and I, I usually ride for many things um, that she does, there are distinct moments in her career that have made me kind of cringe and wish I could sit down at the table and have some tea with her and kind of like build on these things because when it comes to identity, particularly when on the one hand you you're you're claiming to and or seeking to rep and represent a particular space, I feel like you have to also be conscious of of what particular motifs do to us given our experiences. And so for me, growing up first generation Ghanaian, born and raised in New Orleans, I was always very very aware even from the time I was small that I was dark skinned not because of my family but because of the outside world because skin color literally literally in New Orleans has defined what school you can go to what church you can attend what neighborhood you can live in who would be the mayor um and who ultimately comes to represent New Orleans and so that was something that was just very paramount and prominent in my experience and for many New Orleans that I know on all sides of the color trajectory. And so part of that experience is knowing the history of New Orleans and just even contemporarily speaking, there are people of African descent, multi generationally mixed, um, who claim a Creole heritage. And so I do want to say that I recognize and want to honor that Creole is, in fact, a, a, a viable and a valid culture. Um, and identity. And so it is not to take away from that, but in my receptive memory, in my lived experience and interactions with Creole, it has seemingly been predicated more so on an aesthetic and a phenotype than a history or a culture. So it's about what complexion your skin is, what texture your hair is. um, And for the most part, you know, um, what you look like. And so My experience interacting with folks who claim a Creole identity, the way um, they projected their identity was to say, I'm Creole and not Black, as opposed to Creole and Black. You know, and again, for me, as somebody who is diasporic in in consciousness and perspective, in honoring Creole as an identity, I, I see it as one that is a reflection of Blackness, ultimately, particularly given... The, the racialized history of New Orleans at the end of the day for white folks, we're all black, we're all of color, we're not white. And so that tension has always been there in terms of feeling like Creoles were attempting to distance themselves from regular black folks in order to gain um, privileges or in order to gain the good favors of, of white folks and or, or French folks in New Orleans. And so to hear, you know, Beyonce say, To mix that Creole with that Negro, I I hear a distinction in that, you know? And what's so interesting and shady still for those of us from New Orleans, Beyonce is not from Louisiana. Her mother's not from Louisiana. Her mother's family is from Louisiana. And where they're from is a place called New Iberia, and that area is actually more Cajun than Creole. And Cajun and Creole are two different things. Um, So that Beyonce and her family, you know, they claim this particular identity from the insider kind of New Orleans perspective. It's just something that we all kind of like, you know, give a little side eye to. Because the question does become ultimately in claiming the identity, what is it that you want to communicate to folks who are uh, listening to you? And so for me, in listening to that, insofar as she's repping blackness and she's actually encouraging us all to claim our Blackness unapologetically, I still hear that kind of remnant of, of,
0: of distance from it. Lynette Denise, your thoughts?
5: Yeah, I am, I mean, I feel like I'm really sitting with the discussion around Crayo, which is obviously such an emotionally, you know, charged, um, you know, idea, identity, reality for folks. And I absolutely think it was necessary for Dr. Blaise piece to be part of the conversation. It was incredibly important for me um, and hoping to just kind of contextualize and unpack how colorism still requires us to do the work to avoid reinforcing notions of anti-blackness. Um, and I just feel like what is true for me is I don't know enough about the history of New Orleans and Creole culture to actually make an informed, you know, to have an informed critique of it. But, and I think that that's part of what is interesting about this this whole discussion and about the formation video is that um, Beyonce is also a product of the American education system, where and I know it's a system that doesn't prioritize us learning about um, who we are, where we're from, and you know, so I, I think that it's an interesting thing to watch her sort of become politicized on stage, on the world stage. And what I do think is fair that I want to bring to light here is that I've watched her grow from this sort of public critique. I've heard her sort of listen. And we present work that um, is less problematic, and so I, I just sort of am interested to hear how she is going to respond to this very important critique. And I mean, in reading Dr. Blay's article, I actually also went back to the song Creole, which I had never heard of, and, and it's and it's deep and it's painful um, to mm-hmm. hear these references um, be, you know, uh, become a part of popular culture without context. You know, so yeah, we are limited to these like ahistorical lyrics and and almost images when they're combined, and that that um, is something that requires us to add to the conversation for
0: sure. When I first heard the um, creole critique, I was clear that I didn't understand it um, because I thought, um, does she not get to embrace, however complicated, a part of her? Heritage, if it is a part of of her heritage, knowing that the nature of um, blackness in the United States is fraught with all kinds of um, difficulty and brutality and challenge, does she not get to claim that? Well, that was my initial thought, and uh, then I read your piece, um, um, Dr. Yabba Blay, and I was I was grateful for an opportunity to learn about the nuance of something that I was clear that I didn't understand, and that. The opportunity to pass something out and hear the nuance and the detail of it is something that I often, I think that we don't often get to do. We have a very kind of linear, uh, dark-skinned, skin, light light-skinned colorism line when it comes to the way that color is explored. And to even get the detail of the history geographically um, was educational for me. And I didn't, I didn't know that I didn't understand the issue. I didn't even understand the side eyeing that I, that I saw. My, my approach was at the time, well, um, the complexity of identity, shouldn't you be allowed to claim what it is you are, even as you acknowledge that it is complex and it, it, it comes with all these specific issues and challenges, but should she privilege other black women's pain and reject what is her identity. But then, as I said, reading um, what you wrote, part of the issue was that is this even her identity to claim, which is a, a question that, that is raised. Um, but I also take Linnea Denise's point, watching, a, watching this black woman grow in terms of her art and become politicised in specific ways and use a platform, which at this point is megawatt phenomenal, to reach people and places that, um, I mean, frankly, so many others never could, uh, for me is um, um, phenomenal. So I actually appreciate both of those spaces. I appreciate both of those spaces. Probably the thing that has um, stunned me the most is the vitriol that Beyoncé attracts with um, her music, A, a really specific kind of deeply personal critique that feels like it goes beyond the art and the visuals, the representation, the politics, the style. And I think I think about the way that Beyoncé is triggering for um, Black women, particularly, and what that um, triggering is 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 about, and the ways it, it it manifests again and again. Like right now, there's literally going to be um, an anti anti Beyoncé rally and an anti Beyoncé rally. Like there's people are planning marches off the back of a performance. I mean, I'm just. I'm just speechless. Um, But the the vitriol piece, the kind of vitriol that um, um, certainly I've seen just across social media. I sat and was going through Facebook. I was procrastinating doing a piece of work and I was procrastinating. So I took a Facebook break and I got completely lost in just the level of the vitriol directed. And I'm not talking about vigorous critique of specific elements of the video. It's not a negation of the importance of critique. But there's a difference between critique and the kind of um, vitriol that feels very um, personal. And I just wanted to hear both of your thoughts on that, starting with you, Dr. Yabba Blay.
4: Yeah, I mean, that's something that I um, had to kind of face in my own self. And I wrote about that in the piece for Color Lines is that, you know, we do have to be honest and be pushed to be honest and push each other to be honest about what it is that we're responding to and why. And I'm very clear that all of us watch this video with a particular lens, um, with differing levels of expectations and differing relationships to Beyonce for a variety of reasons. You know, for women particularly, I do not think we can underestimate the extent to which her aesthetic triggers us. Beyonce aesthetically represents a lot of pain for a lot of us because her image is what has been privileged and put on a pedestal for generations. Um, And that she aestheticizes herself towards that end, I think also triggers folks, because I can't tell you how many comments I've seen that find it contradictory that she would have Black Panther-esque dancers and yet be rocking a long blonde weave, right? Um, We have many conversations about her blonde hair. We have many conversations about whether or not she's bleached her skin or lightened up since her beginning about her body type, Um, you know, going vegan and losing weight and what that means. I mean, we have so many conversations that are wrapped up in her aesthetic that it's not surprising to me that when other issues come up, we're, I think we're still responding from that space, but I don't know that we know how to get honest about that. And I'm just going to speak for Many of us who are on the darker end of the spectrum, um, I think there's an anxiety and a fear that, you know, if you were to mention these things, that you would automatically be rendered jealous or hater or short-sighted or any of those things and not taken seriously. So instead, I think people, many people, many women, perhaps attempt to beef up their arguments in other areas to kind of like mask that, if that makes sense. So for me, I I do think that a lot of it comes from Beyonce's aesthetic. Um, And that's maybe that's just me um, continuing to check myself. But I do think it's personal. Um, And I'm fascinated by it because I don't know why else it is. You know, what is this, four days later, five days later? And we are still talking about this video and think pieces are still coming out. And we still want to be heard. It's almost like we are very much committed to this idea of, no, hear my critique. No, hear my praise. Like, we are invested in beating each other down. Like, take my side or hear what I'm saying. And I'm sitting back like, why are we so invested in this imagery? Why are we so invested in this woman, in this person? And and, and what is it that she represents? And what is it that she's really waking up in all of us? So to me, it's fascinating. But I do agree. I do think that it is coming from a very personal place.
5: Yeah, um, the triggering piece is interesting for me. Um, I am still at a loss, to be honest, of Beyonce's impact on me. Um, I consider myself to be, you know, well-read, well-traveled, hardcore student of Black American musical genius. And here I am, 100% excited by what she surprises us with when she, you know, presents her work. Um, and I have been wrestling with this sort of like what is this am i am I blocked from a certain kind of critique am i I'm starting to question my own analysis, and I think that what it is is partly for me is that you know I feel like as Americans, we have not been really prepared to deal with complex issues in a way that allows us to really unpack and look at the layers that define some of these experiences that we have. And so for me, I've been like, I mean, yes, I see this problematic European standard of beauty, you know, being celebrated, being awarded, but it's also accompanied by an incredible amount of talent and integrity in a lot of ways. Um, I see her effort as someone who is trying to be aligned with where her community is, um, And, you know, I feel like I see someone who is pushing for a certain kind of independence. And then in terms of triggering, I am wondering myself, I mean, I know that in the history of my life as a student of hip-hop culture, I've not really witnessed this kind of um, response um, being geared towards, say, the misogyny in hip-hop. The response that Beyonce gets is something that I do feel like is rooted in a certain kind of misogynistic take-on a woman having this much access um, and this much power because Beyonce is an enterprise and it's an enterprise that hires, um, you know, women and queer folks and, you know, a number of folks on the margins. And so it's just hard to just offer a simple critique um, of what her work means of what her intentions are. And again, of the sort of direct centuries of pain around color at this light skin, moving body, you know, that makes herself available (laughs) to the public is just, it's just hard for me. Um, So I just sit on this line. I mean, my, my, where she triggers me is not around um, beauty and color and and those things are real. For me, I'm curious about her, you know, evolving relationship with black queer folks. Um, I consider her to be a product of of black queer, you know, culture. I would say that Beyonce is a cultural product of the black queer experience for so many reasons, like I said, the choreographers that she works for and even the notion of the long blonde wig and this sort of what I feel like this sort of drag presentation that mm-hmm. she gives you, right? Because she is shaped by lots of, you know, black gender queer men. So it's an interesting performance of a performance of a performance of gender um, that's happening mm-hmm. and that we're experiencing. But I don't feel fully settled with how she engages black queer folks and I'm and I'm open to her learning around it. I'm curious about why big frida wasn't made visible considering her status as a local sissy bounce queen because it's that kind of visibility mm-hmm. that can save lives and it's the kind of vis- visibility that reinforces the notion that all black lives do matter um and while i don't i don't require beyonce to meet all of my political aspirations in the video i do require want to see us go beyond black queer culture as a semi-subversive accessory you know it's just like mm-hmm. i, I want to know about who Messy Mia is. I don't want to just hear our voices. Um, I want to have some kind of engagement with these people's lives, considering um, how vulnerable, you know, trans folks are. And so um, it was great that we saw, you know, um, some of the girls in a beauty shop. And I mean, I did see her growing in that area. I feel her stepping lightly because I don't think that, and we know when she does, you know, um, songs with, like, say, Nicki Minaj or, you know, whoever else, Rihanna, they're going to appear in the video. And because you're in New Orleans, like, can I please see Big Freedia? Can I, can I see at the end of the video maybe just like a rest in peace, messy something that mm-hmm. points us to the direction of what else we should be looking at in, in New Orleans and and also globally, just for black folks in general. So that's where I'm triggered.
0: Powerful. One last thing, ladies. Y'all slay. Y'all really do slay.
5: I just even want to say that slay is one of those words that comes out of the black queer experience. And so I just want to just honor that and not have that now be fully associated with Beyonce, but have it be associated with her allyship.
0: Okay, closing word to Lene Denise, reimagining the word slay in its full and proper context. So y'all slay in context. That's your hour. Thank you to Dr. Yaba Blay and Lene Denise. Uh, thanks again to Professor Imani Perry and Manifa Bandele from our first main event conversation. Thanks so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you to the Spin production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Racco, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Arma. Put the spin on your regular podcast rotation. The spin, your hour of talk where smart is also and always sexy. I'm your host, Esther Palmer. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium, NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.